0: flushcarecom slash weight loss. This is not a diving podcast with Scuba.
1: Welcome to the show. I'm Scuba. This is the not a diving podcast podcast. This week's show is the second part of a two-part series entitled Thoughts on Releasing Music. So you haven't listened to last week's episode, which was part one, then you might want to go back and do that before listening to this one. I will just give a quick recap in a moment of what last week's episode entailed. But suffice I say we got up to 2010 and really what this is is a kind of potted history. Actually, I say potted, uh, it's, uh, me interviewing myself is how I framed it last week on the subject of the history of hot Flash recordings, the 20th anniversary of which we are currently celebrating and my associated or adjacent work in music throughout that period. I'm trying to put it in a framework of, you know, how to navigate through a music career basically how to make a living from doing this stuff, which I touched on a bit last week, and I'm going to try and put in a slightly more explicit way into this week's show. So we got up to 2010 last week. So 2003 to 2010 is the kind of period we covered. And that period was, you know, largely characterized by an extremely DIY approach. And it also covered the... I guess, rise and fall of dubstep as I saw it anyway. I mean, 2010 definitely was not the point at which dubstep died, if I can use an incendiary phrase like that. But for me, that was the point at which the post-dubstep thing began to run out of steam and the entirety of the vibe that had been present in what I've been involved with musically since 2002 or 2003 really began to ebb away in a big way, in a really noticeable way. And the stuff that happened after that was really completely different, you know, and it entailed people falling by the wayside, loads more people joining the movement, as it were, joining the journey... But it was just a completely different thing. And I'm trying not to put value judgments on this. And I don't think it was any better or worse, quite frankly. I certainly had an amazing time in the period after 2010. It was definitely my most successful period, maybe between 2010 and 2014, 15. And there was a lot of sort of nostalgia, I think, towards the early dubstep days. And, you know, the post-dubstep thing that happened afterwards. But for me, it was very much of the moment. And when it was gone, it was gone. And there were loads of things that came around it which made it a little bit sour tasting, the end of it. But you know, I'll try and cover those in this week's episode. Anyway, anyway, before we get into it, if you like what we're doing here, you can support the show on Patreon, patreon.com slash scuba official. There's two tiers there. One of which gets you on the hot flush promo list. That's the more expensive one. And the other one gets you various bonus podcasts and other stuff and the knowledge you're supporting us here and what we're doing so if you're up for it then please do so patreon.com slash official as i said if you can't do that you don't want to do it that's also cool leave us a review or a rating wherever you're listening to this podcast follow the spotify playlist there's a link in the show notes to that and join us on the discord hot flush recordings.com slash discord gets you into that discord server there is a private area there for supporters of the show but there is a general area too which you don't have to be doing anything financial to get into It's a general hot flush discord server but as a not a diving podcast channel in there and various other channels too so yeah we'd love to see you in there regardless of whether you're supporting us or not directly that would be a good way to support us too so so where had i got to 2010 what happened in 2010 Well. My album Triangulation came out in 2010 and that was the kind of crystallization for me, I think, of what I'd been trying to do musically up to that point. Everything really came together in a way which was, I mean, I was going to say unexpected, but I'm not sure about that. I mean, I've been gradually gaining confidence in my music since that first Hot Flush release in 2003 and a big theme of last week's show was how... I struggled with imposter syndrome and just generally, you know, feeling good about what I was doing musically. And I guess the period in 2009, 2010, uh, probably 2009, yeah, so Triangulation came out early 2010. So in 2009, I think is when everything really came together for me musically. I mean, listen to my first album, which came out in 2008, A Mutual Antipathy, and I really like that album. There's some really great moments on it, but... I think triangulation really crystallized, as I said, what I was trying to do. And looking back on it now, it was a, yeah, it was a key moment really for me. And it was also a key moment for the label because it was a long player, which really made sense, which really caught a bit of the zeitgeist. One thing I didn't mention last episode was that we started doing the substance parties at Birdkind in 2008. And by 2010, they were really rolling. And the sound that had become associated with that party was the dubstep techno crossover sound. And whilst Triangulation wasn't explicitly that, like it was very much a crossover album. So there was dubstep stuff on there, sort of dubstep influence stuff. It was also quite heavily influenced by the UK funky sound that had become popular. And if you're not familiar with that, then go back and listen to the episode with Rosca, I think it's episode three or something. It was one of the really early ones. Where we talk about that in detail, and Roscoe was a really key part of that early funky sound. Uh, and that was that was a really interesting musical movement, and it had some influence on me. So that was covered a bit in the Triangulation album. But also the Autonomic series by Dee Bridge and Instrumental, and the kind of half time drum and bass stuff, there's two tracks, probably my favorite two tracks on the Triangulation album, are both directly influenced by that. And those are the ones that I kind of you look back on the most and think yeah that was yeah that that worked that, that that stuff that stuff worked so those tracks that album really began to I don't know I mean I think yeah it was as I said it was the start in a way but it was also the end because after I released that album I really began to feel like I should do other things I felt like I felt like I'd completed something. With that album, but I'll go into that later. The other thing that came out in 2010 was the Mount Kimby album, Crooks and Lovers, which, as I mentioned on last week's show, remains our most successful release, and it's something which I think is really special to a lot of people. You know, it's some really unique piece of work. It was the culmination of quite a long period, they did two EPs prior to that, and but prior to the EPs coming out, they have been sending me stuff for a good long while. And I've mentioned this in interviews before, but a lot of it was very, very abstract and very, um, you know, quite far away from what might be conceived or might have been conceived to have been releasable. But it was just obvious to me that they had something. And I, you know, I think it's probably, I, I can't say much of the credit for Matt and Kimmy, but I think to, to the extent that I can, it's that I was encouraging to them and then when they be, you know, when they wrote Maybes and there's the other tracks on that first EP, it was just obvious, let's just put it out. And I mentioned the input of ST Holdings and Chris Parkinson on last week's show and they were really supportive as well, even though that 12 was completely off the wall, really, in terms of, you know, n- no one was going to DJ those tracks, although I did play Maybes quite a few times in my DJ sets, but, you know, it was very much of a kind of curveball track. It's not a dance ball track by any stretch of the imagination. But... Yeah, they were very behind the project. And it really, it was a kind of, I suppose it was a slow burner because no one had heard of them, obviously, when we put out that first EP. But it was one of those ones where the the 12 just kept selling and it just chugged along. We were very cautious with it at first. We did a small pressing, but, you know, there were represses and represses and we did the second one. And then, you know, by the time I did the album, they'd been doing their live show which was a genuine live show James Blake had been part of it but obviously no one had heard of James Blake at that point but James Blake was part of the live band he, wasn't, he was never in the studio but he was definitely part of the live band I remember going to see their first ever live show at a small place in Shoreditch in London actually it's not, short, not that small um, but I mean there was no one there <laughs> um, and James was on stage and James was much taller than Kai and Dom and he was in the middle so it looked like his band and it, you know I don't know how happy Kai was about that but (laughs) suffice to say uh he moves on to his own stuff quite quickly but you know it was just a really gratifying thing to see that project come together and see them go on to so much success I mean and aside to say that we've had lots of people come and go from a label and I say come I mean we've put out lots and lots of quite prominent artists first releases on hot flush and you know They've basically all left, but they've genuinely left with my blessing. We have a small platform. I've never really taken the time or had the inclination to, you know, to make it bigger, really. And going on to see Mount Kimby signed to Warp or George Fitzgerald signed to Domino and, you know, there's a few others. It makes me feel good about what we're doing. It really does, it genuinely does. Anyway, so that was 2010 and those two releases really put the label on the map, I think, in a way that it hadn't been previously. And, you know, people were suddenly looking at us and what we were going to do next. And I felt quite ambivalent about that sort of expectation, particularly with my own stuff. And having mentioned the substance parties, like I was obviously really, really busy as a DJ then, but very much playing like bass music parties. And the. The important thing to note here, I think, is that the output of the label has largely been based upon my DJ set over the years. And whatever I'm interested in at the time is reflected in what I play out. And then that's reflected in what we put out as a label, generally speaking. I've said, you know, before on the show that, you know, that the AR has only ever been me. I've never had anyone else really helping me with it. And the parties that I was playing at were increasingly not the parties that I wanted to be playing at. So, you know, living in Berlin and going to Panorama Bar, going to Club Division Era and Watergate and various other great venues and watching DJs play, you know, house DJs and techno DJs play these long sets where they had the space to, you know, really tell a story. And I know that's a cliche, but it's true when you compare it to like playing an hour or maximum, absolute maximum two hours maybe an hour and a half as a bass music DJ it's just well for me it just got boring very quickly and I wanted to do other things and particularly the rewinds thing really pissed me off you know I just like the the kind of rewind arms race which it dubstep turned into quite early on and you know the whole sound system culture thing around it which is fine and it's yeah you know, I absolutely have respect for that stuff of course but it just you know for me as a dj it just wasn't what I wanted to be doing and so it, after doing triangulation it really made much more sense to me to be focusing on doing stuff which was going to take me into those parties you know going to take me away from playing these kind of like rewind fest raves and get me some shows doing longer sets, and, you know, with a a crowd which were going to be not calling for the pull-up any time I dropped a big one, you know? So that's what I wanted to do. And I would started doing the SCB project. I think, I think the first one of those was in 2000... Well, the first SCB release actually was the Hard Boiled remix, which came out in 2008. And then I did the first SCB 12 in 2009, and that was really well-received. And so that was kind of a precedent for it. And, you know, I just wanted to spread my wings and do other things and I didn't really think too hard about how people were going to react because I'd always sat to one side of things and it didn't occur to me that people were like seeing me as a central figure by that point it really didn't and looking back on it now I probably should have given that a bit more thought and a bit more attention but my attitude was just like well, I don't really fit in anywhere, so I'm just going to do what I like. And that's what took me to doing the Loss track in early 2011 on house Music. I did that as SCB, actually. And then Adrenaline in September 2011. And making Adrenaline and releasing Adrenaline was, you know, a genuinely life-changing moment for me. I mean, it it, it really was. I remember the first time it got played which was on a rooftop party in Barcelona and Will Saul was playing and I had a CD of it on me and I said, I've got this track. I think it's a big one. Do you want to play it to him? And he's like, yeah, yeah, hand it over. And I was just like, well, here it is. So it was like, and I remember what I said to him. I said, there's a minute of bass. Sorry, there's a minute of kick and a minute of bass and then the breakdown. So he was like, yeah, okay. So I told him how to mix it, basically. And when that breakdown came in, and it was the perfect setting for it to be played, like sun setting, Barcelona, really hot, loads of people, great atmosphere. And then people hear that breakdown for the first time, and it was just amazing. It was a genuinely, I'll never forget that moment. It was, it was unbelievably great. Unbelievably great, in fact. I just wanted to hear it played again and again and again. And... Yeah, people liked it, that's all I can say. But people liked it in a way that changed their perception of me. I mean, there was a point at which things got a bit too much. Things got a bit bitchy, but it took a while for it to get to that point. So I was handed a lot of rope, and I should definitely acknowledge that. Like, I was definitely given a lot of slack by the press. I was given a lot of slack by the audience. People were just like, yeah, this is great and let's see where it goes and again I didn't really appreciate that at the time I don't think I didn't appreciate how rare that was to be given that amount of leeway to do what I wanted I completely took it for granted and looking back on it I you know I I should have been It was a typical kind of hubristic approach where you know I was Having this kind of moment, and it was almost like, well, yeah, and I mean, nothing can stop this happening, and and of course that's bullshit. And I didn't really, I think I lacked people around me to point that out. I think maybe that's unfair, but I th- I guess I guess I have that impression of it now. Anyway, that was 2011, and what came out of doing that 12. Adrenaline and the other track on that is Never, which I, I think that's one of my best tracks. I, I genuinely love that tune. I prefer that tune to Adrenaline, I think. So that and Loss. And also there was a track called Feel It which came out on the Back and Forth compilation, which was a proper middle finger to, you know, people who thought I should have been doing dubstep. And, and as I said, there weren't that many of them, really. It was almost like I was creating conflict for the sake of creating conflict. I was defining myself against what was happening in a way which was I think deliberately provocative but but in a way I just didn't think I didn't think a lot of people would care and I didn't think I had much to protect which again was was very naive but as I said it didn't blow back in my face at all initially and I guess that added to the sort of complacency and the, um, the lack of care that I took in the following years but anyway I cracked on with writing the next record which is Personality which came out in 2012 so I was on a album every two years scheduled there so Mutual Antipathy was 2008, Triangulation 2010, Personality 2012 and I figured that would, that would be how I would be kind of chugging on and by the time Personality came out I was very much ensconced in this house and techno world kind of kind of so Loss of been really successful and so adrenaline and i was kind of riding the crest of a wave there but i wanted to but i wanted to make sure that the crossover thing was still a central part of what i was doing so i didn't want to go full into one thing and i wanted to emphasize that with the next album and personality i think looking back on it it was seen as being a very sharp turn towards a kind of mainstream approach or a sort of um much more technicolour approach. So to an extent it is, but I've always seen the similarities more than I've seen the differences between personality and triangulation. I think that it is a lot more similar than people give it credit for. Or maybe even credit's the wrong word, but like people don't acknowledge how similar those two records are. And I think that, I would have been served better, I think, by going more squarely into one thing. But I mean, that's a general observation about what I've done since day one really like being out to the left of something and being I guess lacking in decisiveness about the musical direction that I want to take has in hindsight I think not been helpful and if I was going to make a point about you know making a living through music and doing this for a career and I've had this conversation with people recently being consistent is extremely important and the market rewards you for that now What I said last week about being yourself, this is a trade-off and it's a juggling act that you have to pull off, basically. So it's about building enough of an audience who are going to stay with you, but being true to your artistic vision to the extent that you are able to change things up and move around, but not to the extent where you alienate people and if I had a criticism myself is that I've done far too much alienation and quite a lot of it on purpose which is not big and it's not clever and I wouldn't advise anyone to do that it's a stupid thing to do don't ever alienate your audience on purpose Like it's really dumb but I've 100% done it over the years and I wonder why I've done that. that's a question I ask myself a lot on the recent Singles Club if you're a patron you will get our Singles Club episodes on the most recent one of them I told a story about playing it through rotation and how I really didn't feel that like I fit in there at all with the crowd. How I felt very, very excluded. And excluded is the wrong word, actually. I felt very. Um, I felt like I just didn't belong there, basically. And it was like being at school. It was the same. It was the same feeling I had when I was at school, and you know, when I was in various those situations when I was younger. I really felt like this is not for me. I'm, I shouldn't be here and when i feel like that i get very adversarial and i try and define myself by those feelings i think subconsciously which is why i do stuff like alienate people on purpose and try and drive people away on purpose without thinking too much about it i mean it's just you know it's unbelievably stupid and i've definitely lacked those voices, those restraining voices, over the years. I went into it a little bit on last week's show, and you know, Chris Parkinson at ST Holdings was extremely important to me. But I didn't have much over the years. I haven't had much over the years in people who have been able to tell me no, basically. And I think that's so important. I think you should always have people who are feel able to say no. You shouldn't be doing this, and you've got to try and make those voices when I say make I mean you've got to try and empower people around you to be able to say no to you be able to say no this is stupid you've got to do something else this is dumb but it's very difficult no one wants to say that and I've got people who who I trust and to give me like honest feedback to music and that sort of thing but it's different it is different when you're talking about sort of these the bigger themes and the bigger kind of strategic decisions it's hard it's really hard And I haven't had that, which is a big regret of mine. So it got to the point where I'd finished the personality record, but it hadn't come out yet. And what I was just saying about not having had voices to advise me and, you know, to restrain me in certain respects, it's worth pointing out here that up until this point, I'd never had an artist manager. I'd had a booking agent, but I'd been in everything else myself with very, very little supervision, very little, you know, top-down advice and input from someone who had a direct stake in what i was doing so it's one thing having your distributor giving you advice and that kind of thing but they haven't got their eye on the bottom line to the extent that you need someone to who has given you advice right so they can still be extremely useful as i said chris parkinson was extremely useful but it wasn't an arts manager so before personality came out it suddenly became clear that people were interested in taking me on manager wise, and that I could basically move to whatever booking agency that I wanted to. And that was a, you know, that was weird realization. Because as I said, having done everything myself, it was very, very strange. And it took me a while to realize what was happening. You know, people were you know, asking me out to lunch and offering me certain things. And I just didn't clock for the first few weeks or maybe in the few months that was happening what was going on like I remember getting taken out to dinner in New York by an agency and not even clocking that they were taking me out because they wanted to poach me (laughs) from my existing agency and sitting around the table at lunch and then going you know are you happy with your agency and I was just like well yeah I am not even (laughs) realizing the loaded nature of their question that's how dumb I was that's how naive I was at that point can't believe that looking back at it now but I mean wow so in terms of managers my view of artist managers at the time was one of total ignorance, basically. I hadn't read any books, I hadn't really immersed myself at all in, you know, the stories of the music industry. And I had just had no idea really what a manager did, really. I mean, I had a vague idea that, you know, they're supposed to look after your career and you know. But, you know, I didn't really know what that entailed. And I didn't know what I should be looking for, and I didn't know what I even wanted to do really. So <laughs> looking back on it now, it was total chaos and I had no clue. You know, I needed someone. I absolutely needed someone for sure and I needed someone good and I ended up going with a guy called Mick Searshal who I want to have on the podcast sometimes because he's a really great guy and very entertaining person and an extremely successful person. He's the artist manager of Eric Prydz. and he's overseen Eric's career basically since day dot. He took him on I believe it was two weeks before the video for Call On Me came out. And his first job was to try and stop that video from coming out. You'll know the one, the one in the gym. And he was appalled by this and tried to stop it, but but wasn't able to. I'm pretty sure that's the story. And when we have him, we can ask him about that. But he was from the UK techno scene. So he had made some really great techno when he was younger, which I had. On records, there's a artist's oh, name is Spira. None of it's available digitally. I've still got the record somewhere, but some, it's really excellent, proper hard banging techno. But he was just this consummate industry mover and shaker at that point. Like he did not strike you as being an underground techno producer. He was like the you know, the ultimate kind of industry guy, but someone who operated outside. Of the big corporations right so he knew everyone at every major he knew all the promoters all the big festival because yeah he was just a huge personality and very seducing i mean i as i said i think he is a great guy i got him with him great and you know he's still someone who i i guess who i look up to and kind of recognize what he's done in music i mean go on to say how it panned out with me but I mean not everything works out for the best but I have nothing but good things to say about him as a person but he injected a degree of professionalism which had been sorely lacking previous to working with him and he taught me a huge amount about how things work and really opened my eyes you know in a way that as I mentioned Chris on last week's show, and I've mentioned him today as well, in terms of the workings of an underground label were explained to me by Chris Parkinson and the way a international touring act works was explained to me by Mick Sershaw. And it was really, as I said, eye-opening. I mean, the direct experience of doing Eric's shows, I mean, Eric, he wasn't doing the big hollow shows yet, but I mean, they were definitely doing some really, really big audio-visual stuff and it was pretty incredible, the level of detail and the extent to which somehow things are made to work when they probably shouldn't. <laughs> but it was totally out of my comfort zone. I was transported to this world where you know stupid amounts of money were being made. You know, six-figure DJ fees and all the rest of it. And it was you know, pretty mind-blowing for me. Having come from quite recently a world of kind of bass music where everything is extremely small scale, you know there are some some great parties and some great events and some really memorable moments but it's not part of that Well, the wider music industry, the kind of mainstream music industry which at that point EDM was really kicking off and I guess Eric was to one side of that but you know, someone who's had number one single, all that kind of stuff anyway, as I said, it was eye-opening, it was alluring, it kind of carried me away and It 100% took me away from the sort of bass music thing. And I wanted that. I absolutely wanted it. I was very much like, it's fine. I felt like I'd done my bit in it. I felt like, you know, triangulation had essentially fulfilled my vision for what I wanted to do with it. And I was ready to do something else. But I wasn't ready. And I should point this out. I wasn't ready to go full mainstream. I absolutely wasn't ready to do that. And we did the thing where we went around all the majors, got taken out to dinner with everyone. And they always ask you, you know, what do you want to be? What do you want to do? What's your vision? And, <laughs> you know, I would always say I want to I want to make an album like the second Orbital album, like the Brown album. And I think people's view for me was like the best case scenario was that I was going to be something analogous to the Chemical Brothers. And the track The Hope and then you know Hard Body and you know that sort of adrenaline thing were sort of I guess feeding into that, but I've never been a Chemical Brothers fan really. And again, this is a this is a result of not really thinking things through. So I was in these <laughs> I was in these posh dinners <laughs> saying I wanted to be orbital, which is not what anyone wanted to hear at all. It was the last thing people wanted to hear, <laughs> actually. And I just didn't care, you know? I just I just didn't give a shit and <laughs> you know I talked about as I said staying true to yourself and there's something to be said about that but I mean you have to balance it somehow you have, as I said before you have to find a balance between fulfilling yourself in terms of where you can go and staying true to your artistic vision I think that's the fundamental sort of dichotomy there I think that's the fundamental thing you've got to balance you know for some people Well, some people are more happy with one side of that ledger than the other. But I think if you want to have a career, a long career, it's a trade-off between those two things. And yeah, I think the former is more important. Was it the former? Well, the thing about staying true to yourself artistically, that's more important. Don't get me wrong. That is the most important thing. But then finding a way to get the most out of that um, trying to avoid using the word commercially, but <laughs> commercially, let's just say it, trying to make the most of your commercial potential, that's important too. And if you want to put food on the table, it's crucial. That's the harsh reality of the music industry, you know, it is that and how you do that can relate to music but it also relates to image it also relates to personal marketability we talked a little bit about that on last week's show you have to take that seriously and the idea that something how social media has fundamentally changed that i think is wrong i think it's always been crucial like what you look like and how people see you visually i mean just look at i don't know alice cooper let's let's take that as an example right If, if you've seen the shep gordon movie UberMensch, SuperMensch, super mensch it's, it's super isn't it uber is something else it's a shep gordon movie which i would highly recommend watching and also there's an amazing episode of the bob left sets podcast with shep gordon which came out about the same time his management of alice cooper is just exemplary in that and what was the theory that they followed well they wanted the parents of all the kids in the target audience to absolutely hate alice cooper as much as possible And it absolutely worked. And the same is true today, actually. If you look at arguably the biggest pop star in the world, or certainly the biggest pop star in the UK, who is Sam Smith, Sam Smith and their approach to gender. Now, (laughs) looking at that really, really cynically, you could argue is a calculated move to make the parents of his target audience hate him. Or not hate him, but just like disapprove of him strongly. And I think probably isn't quite as cynical as that, but... That's what's going on there. And it's unbelievably effective. It genuinely is. I mean, it's just textbook. It could be Shep Gordon calling the shots there. And like I said, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not accusing Sam Smith of that at all. But it's having that exact same effect. So it's crucial to you know, keep an eye on those things and um, take them seriously, not just keep an eye on them, take them really, really seriously. And as I said, like it's not something to be cynical about in terms of like, oh, you know, the music industry's gone to shit. No, it's always been like that. always been like that so I took on this management didn't sign a deal we did a big series of live shows which cost an absolute fortune to put on didn't quite work musically I should hold my hands up now and say that it didn't work because the nature of the the visual side that we did meant that the show had to be very tightly programmed and my music is just not well doesn't translate that well to big stages and in hindsight what I should have done is just DJ'd and just played my own tracks but being able to react to what was going on and I wasn't able to do that and it didn't quite work and I was just not able to program the music in a way that it worked and that's 100% on me I should have asked for help there 100% should have asked for help I thought I should have just got someone else to do it quite frankly who knew what they were doing and maybe I could have had input I should have just got them to program it and then just performed it and I would highly recommend anyone doing that sort of show. If you've got no experience, then don't do it yourself. Do not do it yourself. Get someone who knows what they're doing. Even if you think, oh yeah, I'm a DJ, I know what works. You probably don't. It's different. So that was a big mistake. And so we got to the end of the personality album cycle and I was like, okay, that went okay, but it's not quite done what I hoped it was going to do. Having said that, I was really successful in terms of DJing, in terms of my place in, the, I guess, the ecosystem of playing out. It was very, very positive in that sense. But was I happy? Not really. Not really. So before we go on, let's just think a little bit about the scene that I was operating in and how that had changed. So when I say the end of the album cycle personality album cycle, I guess what I mean is beginning of 2014, or the end of 2013. And in the intervening period, a couple of things had happened. First of all, we finished doing the substance party in July 2013. That was the fifth birthday and was the last one we did. And something which kind of opened my eyes quite a lot was the reception to the closing compilation that we released to coincide with that party which was a big box set I think it was five times vinyl or something like that and it was a reflection of what the music was like at Substance at that point which had changed a lot so we have mentioned in various episodes the kind of changing of the guard that happened around 2012-ish in the bass music scene in the UK scene the fact that everyone started making house music basically and what I said earlier about how the kind of dubstep thing ended the post-dubstep thing kind of like soldered on for a little bit but I mean 2010 was the beginning of the end and I think by the by 2012 it was absolutely gone that spirit of early forward was 100% dead And everyone was doing other shit. Like people had read the writing on the wall. They wanted to, you know, play festivals. They wanted to, you know, have these big hits. There were plenty of new entrants to the kind of UK house thing. Uh, I don't need to say who they were. Some of them are good, some of them not so good. And, you know, bass music as a kind of cool thing was really in the doldrums in 2012, 2013. And so we put out this compilation and it didn't go down well at all with the record shops i was a little bit shocked to learn that you know, hardbacks didn't want to stock it like they were not on board with this uk house thing they were not on board with the way the music had gone and they just weren't into it and that was kind of a shock to me that gave me a bit of a jolt and i wasn't quite sure where that left us musically in terms of my aspirations of being you know having one foot in a number of different camps if that analogy makes sense. The other thing that happened, there was a change of editorship of RA in early 2013. And RA had been really, really supportive of us under the previous regime. It had been um, a really cool, what I thought was really cool in terms of its editorial, super open to European house and techno, but, you know, taking an interest in the cooler stuff that was happening in UK-based music and various other kinds of music. And it was a really nice balance. And what happened after 2013 was that there was a really snarky, snobbish tone that entered it. And, you know, you could see that in the attitudes towards what was popular in house music at the time, stuff like Jamie Jones and Hot Creations and you know people like Seth Chokso and all the rest of it. Um, editorial in RA was very it was almost hostile towards that stuff in a way which I think had a really mm, it left a really sour taste and I think what happened with the comments section and how toxic that got and all the rest of it I think the flames of that were really fanned by the editorial and it just became a really unpleasant site it became a really unpleasant institution in electronic music after 2013 and I You know, frankly hated it. And it just made me want to say fuck you to that whole section of the music industry or section of the electronic side of the music industry, the dance scene or whatever. I just thought it was awful. And, you know, my desire to stick a finger up, stick two fingers up or stick a middle finger up to that whole thing, that whole attitude, that whole kind of middle class, British, sneering, snobbish, just salty, arrogant outlook at music. Really, I just I just think it's awful. I think it was awful. And I that was, I guess, a flavor of the <laughs> re-rotation crowd, which I found myself so alienated by a few years later. But yeah, I just found the whole thing was just fucking bullshit. And it really made me want to say fuck you to all of them. And my First album was called Amusing Antipathy, and I felt something a little bit similar towards the UK scene when I released that in 2008. But it was nowhere near as strong. I just felt a little bit estranged from you know the UK dubstep scene in 2008. It wasn't like I wanted to say fuck you to anyone, but in 2013, I really did want to say fuck you. And my attitude was to say, well, yeah, I don't care. I'm if you're if you guys don't like these people, then. They're cool with me. It was that bad, so I would associate and do music with people who, yeah, I didn't even particularly like, and I you know, wasn't super into the whole kind of, I guess the sort of people call it tech house, but like the kind of mainstream. What it was actually called deep house at the time, wasn't it? It wasn't called tech house. Tech house people called it deep house, and my attitude was just like, well, this is kind of okay, but if if these dickheads really hate it then I should probably like it because it'll piss them off. And, you know, again, a bad attitude to have. An attitude that I'm not particularly proud of. But that was the kind of thing that motivated me back then. And I was just like, I don't know whether that was I don't know whether that's a function of or what that's a function of in me. I mean, I tried to sort of analyse myself last week in terms of my confidence in music and how that affected what I put out on the label and all the rest of it. And I certainly wasn't lacking confidence in this period. But I was defining myself against other people rather than trying to be positive and plan my own lane in a positive way, which is not advisable. I don't think I wouldn't advise anyone to. Well, if, if you recognize that happening in yourself, then then try and stop it. I was just carried away with this kind of wave of money and success and feeling invincible and also feeling like you know there are people who have taken this media institution that I like and turned it into this bullshit I just didn't like that and I felt sort of I guess I sort of felt omnipotent in my ability to say fuck you and for it to not affect me but it did affect me you know it absolutely did and when I say me I mean my career but but by the end of 2013, so to go back to the label, I'd been releasing sort of house singles on the label and we'd been releasing stuff which was adjacent to that. And we were also releasing stuff which were you know really big tunes. So stuff like you know, some Recondite big hits, stuff like Mind Against and Paul Wolford. We had a really big hit with Paul Wolford actually, which we then sold on to Sony. And just various things like that, which were definitely house but in that kind of UK house thing, but I was always very much like, if we want to do European stuff, and if we want to do some of this kind of deep house stuff, which everyone hates so much, then fuck you, we'll do it, right? And again, that was my attitude. It really was. You know, I can stand behind basically everything we've released on the label, with maybe a couple of exceptions, but basically everything we've put out, I think has a lot of merit musically. And when I was going through the the catalogue, to so put these compilations together for the 20th anniversary thing, I was just stunned by how much great music there is, quite frankly. I really do think that we've done a great job over the years of releasing great stuff. And now I should say that we haven't released a lot of hits, hardly any hits really, like so sort of big dance hits. We've released, I think, important records which are influential, which is something slightly different, something very different in fact. And I think that over the years, there have been different points at which we've, been important in different areas of a dance scene but i think the fact that we've moved around a lot has not served us well in terms of building a lasting and a kind of loyal fan base and again to make a point about you know, making music i think that's something which you've really really got to take seriously and something that i didn't take anywhere near seriously enough like the, the importance of looking after your fans looking after people that like your music and not treating them like like shit, which I, you know, quite frankly, did at certain points over the years, you know, which is super, super dumb. And I think if there's one lesson that I would, apart from the staying true to yourself thing, I think that's the sort of other most important thing to take into account is to really look after the people that like your stuff and, you know, show them some respect, a lot of respect, because <laughs> they're enabling you to do what you do. It's so important. And I wish someone had sat me down and told me that 15 years ago because I think it's a lesson that you... It's not a lesson that you should have to learn, but I did have to learn it. So if you're starting a music career now or even if you're into it, you know, I just, just take that seriously. Take it as seriously as you possibly can. And if you're playing a show, stay after of a show and shake people's hands. Take as many photos as people want to take. If someone messages you online, do your best to reply to people. Say something nice. Say something positive. If you think something's bad, then I think I think it's completely acceptable to give negative feedback if you do it in a thoughtful way. And particularly if someone has sent you music where they've really thought about sending it to you. As a DJ or a label, A and R, you will get sent loads and loads of stuff where people are just sending scattergun mails out, and they they don't really give a shit who they're sending it to, and it you know, it's just on the off chance. And tell those people to do one, <laughs> you know, absolutely. Ignore them or tell them to fuck off. I think that's totally legit. But if someone has obviously likes your label, genuinely thinks they should be on it, but they're nowhere near, then give them feedback. You know, tell them why, tell them what they need to do. Be as specific as possible. I really think it you know, it's such a nice thing to do for someone. And giving an honest no because XXX, It can be so useful and getting objective feedback on your music at any level is hard. It's extremely hard for me now to get honest feedback. But if you're starting out, then having a real kind of forensic dissection of your music from someone who you respect, I think that's so useful. And I wish I'd had more of that when I was when I was coming up. Anyway, so that's good thing to do. And yeah, just respect the people that come to your shows, buy your records want to emulate your records or whatever yeah I think that's super important anyway we got to 2014 what happened to me in 2014 wasn't great I spent the whole summer in bed sick it was awful I had glandular fever which doesn't sound that bad but believe me it was bad I missed a whole summer of shows I'm not going to tell you how much money that was but it was an enormous amount of money and I should say that It was a real wake up call for me and the way I viewed my career in terms of like the business side of my career. Because what that forced me to do was to really dig into the books and figure out where I was financially and whether it was good or not. And surprise, surprise, it was not great. (laughs) I mentioned before that the previous few years I've been earning a huge amount of money from DJing, but it doesn't matter how much money you're earning what tends to happen if you don't keep an eye on it, then you just spend more and you end up saving nothing. And that's almost true for like any amount of money you make. That probably sounds ridiculous to some of you, but it genuinely is. And this wasn't even in the era where people were getting private jets a lot. I can only only guess how much money has been wasted by DJs on private jets over the last few years. Jesus, I never did that. Anyway, by the time I got out of bed... In September 2014, I was extremely cognizant of the fact that I didn't have any money, despite the fact that I'd earned a ton. But I was still in a position where I could earn money. So, what happened was, is I slightly unfairly blamed my existing team for this <laughs> lack of financial success, when in reality, it was basically my fault. But I essentially sacked everyone. So, I got rid of my manager, I got rid of my booking agent, and That immediately gave me a 30% pay rise because no management commissions and my previous agent had always taken 10% of the existing fee and I had a new booking agent. My deal with him that I had was that he would always charge his fee on top. So I was getting 100% of my headline live fees and not paying management commissions. So that was just very, very helpful. And in my episodes with Totally Enormous Extinct Dinosaurs, we talk about that paying 20% management commission is, I mean, there are probably scenarios, there are definitely scenarios where that's worth it, but the value added is quite often not that high. And ditto with agency fees, like 10% is is a low agency fee, but if it's coming out of your headline each time, then, well, that's not great. So my new arrangement, which I kept for the next few years, was I didn't have a manager and I'd learned so much from Mick that I felt able to do that. And it was okay for a good couple of years, I reached a point a few years later where I felt like I needed help again, but I was able to kind of ride out that next two or three year period without any input, which enabled me to kind of rebuild myself and get to the point where I should have been in the first place. But you only do that, and again, this is an important lesson to point out, you only do that by having a laser focus on how much money you're making and what you're doing with that money. Am I, if I've got a big regret in life, generally speaking, it's not doing that earlier. It's not, you know, investing my money seriously at an earlier point. And you know, the amount that I've lost out on as a result of that is, is, is mind-blowing. You can't dwell on that, obviously. But yeah, the earlier you do that and do it in your 20s, like start saving money, put money in a pension or whatever, it's so important. And the earlier you do it, the less you have to do, you know, the less you have to put away each month power of compounding interest. If you want to learn about something that's going to be useful in life, learn about compounding interest and learn about low cost ETFs, learn about you know the relative performance of asset classes over long periods of time, learn about all that stuff. It's so useful. It makes such a huge difference to your overall position, which feeds into your just sense of security in life. It makes such a huge difference when you're not worrying about money and it's eminently doable as long as you take it seriously from early on and the earlier you do it the easier it is and you know you don't have to be earning a huge amount of money to achieve that at all you genuinely don't you just got to educate yourself and take it seriously and do it 100 believe that fact, i know that's true it's 100 true anyway so i embarked upon the claustrophobia album which is very much the techno thing and spent two or three years playing festivals earning good money playing festivals and we were doing sort of adjacent stuff on Hot Flush at that point. So we were releasing a lot of sort of boomy techno stuff, and the remixes that came out off the Colossiferia album were really, really strong. And I think that, I I suppose what had happened in that period since 2010, so we're now in sort of 2016-ish, what had happened is that, you know, we'd established a business like Hot Flush was running as a as a you know, a reasonably successful business, like supporting a couple of people, putting on a lot of parties, releasing some successful music. But I think the change since two thousand and ten, and this is a brutally honest assessment, but I think the change that really happened is that we we lost some of our cultural importance. We lost some of our importance within the scene, with the wider dance scene. And we I suppose we just became to an extent anyway became just another dance label you know whereas I think at that point in 2010 we were genuinely different you know and we were genuinely doing different stuff and I wonder about why that happened you know I think like you know my own <sighs> idiosyncrasies in wanting to you know put my middle finger up to people and almost like you know do the thing that was going to piss the people piss people off the most which is to say you know if you've got a culturally important label what's the what's the most annoying thing you can do go mainstream right and it was almost like I wanted to do that just to say fuck you which is not big and it's not clever and I regret it a bit I think but I, you know I think my life would look a lot different had I not done that and not all of it positive so I don't know it swings aroundabouts, and you can't get too hung up on regret generally speaking. But yeah, 2016 was a period, you know, I was, I guess, running out of steam. I'd drunk far, far, far too much over the previous decade. I eventually quit drinking in 2016. Didn't have a drink at all for 18 months. And it was just a reflection of the fact that I'd hit a wall, really. So I was still playing out lots. I was still, you know, doing my heavy schedule. But I was... Really out of gas. And, you know, things were suffering in my personal life around it. And it was very, very difficult. And doing a full circuit with a kind of teetotal thing is that's a positive step, but it's, you know, it wasn't happy, period, at all. And it got to the point, you know, into 2018 where I was like, I felt like I needed a break. I had to stop something. And I eventually did that in 2019. I checked out completely from playing out I decided I wanted a year's break and that turned out to be the worst year you could possibly take it off from DJing because 2020 and 2021 weren't years you could play out either so i basically took 3 years off but i was extremely fortunate in the sense that i would adjusted myself financially by the time the pandemic hit to not be reliant upon dj fees to live i'd taken saving seriously getting my finances in order to the extent that you know I could live an okay life without much input and so many people I know were so badly hit by the pandemic basically because they weren't ready for that and they were you know living this inflated luxury lifestyle completely dependent upon you know bringing in x thousands of pounds a show and living according to that and I was very fortunate not to have to go through that. Very, very fortunate. And I'm also fortunate enough to have you know, come out of the pandemic doing as much as I want. You know, I've been playing a few shows, nothing too heavy. We're doing a fairly hectic schedule to support the Hot Flash 20th anniversary thing. But that's purely because we want to have fun and we want to do some parties. And, you know, it makes sense to cover as many bases geographically as possible. It's not through necessity. And I'm very, very lucky to be able to do that. Extremely lucky. But it's only really... In hindsight, it's only really because of that period after 2015 where I started taking my shit seriously on the financial side, the personal financial side. Because if I hadn't done that, then I would be in a really bad situation now. So if I can, you know, use myself as a positive example, you know, what I've just been describing isn't all positive at all, and I've glossed over some of the worst bits of it. But if there's something I can look back upon and say, yeah, that was a really positive step that I took and it really had a game-changing effect, it's that. It's learning to take personal finance seriously, which is the most boring thing ever, I realise. But, but it genuinely was game-changing, life-changing, and I wouldn't be sitting here. I might not be here now if I hadn't done that. That's the truth. That's the the honest truth. Okay, so that kind of brings us up to the present day really, doesn't it? I mean, the way I see it now, the way I see what we're doing on the label now and what I'm doing personally, is I guess quite sort of free from pressure. I think that's how I would mostly describe it. I think like having done something for this long and being able to look back and sort of pick apart things that I've done right, things that I've done wrong, and there's been probably been more things that I've done wrong, in all honesty. But being able to look at it back and, you know, try and Say well, I want to do these things again. I don't want to do these things. I just want to concentrate on you know the stuff that stuff that is positive, really, and not get carried away by my uh, instincts to say fuck you to people. I think that's. I think if I was going to take away something, and you know, I tried to be honest in this podcast, and there's definitely things that I don't come away from well. There's definitely things that I don't look good describing, right? But I've just tried to be, you know, upfront about the whole thing and try and give you what I actually feel about it. But I think that the ability to be objective about the past and try and learn lessons and try and keep going in a way which is sustainable and which is fun and enjoyable. And if we're doing music then it has to be fun, right? I mean what's the point of doing this unless it's fun like it absolutely should be. But I just feel like, you know, there's not a lot of pressure on what I'm doing right now in a good way. And, you know, being able to celebrate 20 years of doing something which has given a lot of people a lot of happiness and then plan to do more of that and hopefully accentuating the good things in that forward-looking respect. I think, you know, it's a good place to be in, isn't it, really? It certainly could be a lot worse. So I think finally on this, I'd probably pick out like four like key points just to reiterate before we close on this and you know four key points relating to how best to construct yourself a career right so you know first of all being yourself and staying true to your vision that's something I flagged on last week's show and I think that's you know, it's important. Artistically, it's important in the way people perceive you. It's important in constructing yourself uh, artistic strategy, which I think is important. And just being clear about who you are, you know, and projecting that. Secondly, as I said, taking your finances seriously. I mean, that's a really boring thing to say, but I think it's so important. And as I've emphasized in the last few minutes, it's just crucial, absolutely crucial. The third one, I would say would be to take responsibility for yourself having control over everything is a prerequisite i think but just recognizing the fact that you have the control too you know like booking agents work for you managers work for you that's such an important thing to remember and having agency over all of that stuff and having that at the forefront of your mind that you are the boss there, you are the one who is calling the shots and realizing that that means you have a responsibility to yourself to keep informed, to keep up to date, to understand where you are in the marketplace, to understand where you fit in. Like those things are super important and you know, no one's going to do it for you is the reality. And it's great having a you know, booking agent who looks after you properly and great having a manager who knows how to, to position you in the right kind of a way and adds value. Those things are all great, but ultimately it's down to you. And then the final one, which kind of links into that, what I've just said, is to embrace the input and experience of other people. And if there's anything that I haven't done enough of, I would say it's probably that. It's to really pick out people and engage them and, you know, if you haven't got an obvious mentor, go out and find one and just pick people's brains as much as possible and be open to new ideas. Be open to other points of view. Be open to what people say. And don't be snobbish about anyone, I would say. I mean, it's. <laughs> I've often say it's okay to be snobbish about music and I sort of think that it is, but you shouldn't be snobbish about people ever, ever at all. There are things to be learned from literally everyone and that's something that... I would emphasize on myself as much as anyone listening to this. It's so important to learn from other people. It's so important to embrace them and embrace their experience and embrace their knowledge and take as much as you possibly can from it in a positive way, I mean, obviously. And of course, having said all that and made a big song and dance about saying there's four, there's actually five. It's one I've forgotten and it's one that I flagged up earlier. And it's to be grateful for the people who like your music. Take them seriously, respect them. Do everything you can to be nice to them and just be aware that they're the reason that you're able to do it. They're the reason you're able to make a living. They're the reason you're able to do what you love doing. Without them, you'd be nothing. That's the truth of it. So yeah, that's the final one. And don't forget that one like I have many times over the years. Okay, anyway, I've been rambling on for a good long while now. I think we'll leave it there. So yeah, thanks for listening to this and last week's. We'll be back next week with a guest. I know who that guest is going to be. So hold tight for that. If you want to support the show, then you can do via Patreon, patreon.com slash GooberOfficial. If you don't, and that's also cool, leave us a review or a rating wherever you listen to this podcast. Follow the Spotify playlist. There's a link in the show notes. And join us on the Discord to discuss anything that I've been talking about on this week's and last week's show. If you've got any comments, if you've got any feedback, if you've got any... Uh, observations, then the Discord is the place to do it, hotflushcorners.com Discord. See you there. Okay, yeah. I will see you back here same time, same place next week for the next episode of a Not A Diving Podcast. Thank you.